Good morning. Before we turn to the Bible this morning, may I take the opportunity to thank you for the good natured way that just about every one of you has responded to this less than ideal situation of being in COVID lockdown. Looking at a screen all day long is hard on the eyes, but it's generally tiring as well. And those of you who are doing it while homeschooling is going on in the house and the walls seem to be closing in, well, you're nothing short of legendary. We're all hoping it will end soon, but uh, something like this is always likely at a moment's notice until the vast bulk of the population are immunized. But thank you. Thank you for being considerate and gracious under pressure. Shall we pray together? Heavenly Father, we pray this morning as we turn again uh, to Matthew's Gospel, that in your mercy you might speak to us. Please help us to hear what you want us to hear in this your word, and please would you shape our lives by it. We long to live as faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus, and we pray that you might use your word to teach us, to correct us, to reprove us, and to train us in righteousness for the glory of your son Jesus. Amen. Well, will you turn with me to Matthew 20, uh, where we pick up Matthew's account of Jesus at verse 17. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve apart privately and on the way said to them, look, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes and they'll condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and beaten and crucified. And on the third day, he'll be raised. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons to kneel before him and ask something from him. He said to her, what do you want? She said to him, let these two sons of mine sit one on your right and one on your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup which I'm about to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, while you will drink my cup, to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard about this, they were furious with the two brothers. Jesus called them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles dominate them and their great ones force their authority upon them. It will not be so among you. But whoever wants to be great among you will become your servant and whoever wants to be first will be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It is astonishing how much of the world lives on in each one of us. I mean, even after three, 10, 15, 50 years following Jesus, it is astonishing how much of the world lives on in each one of us. If the essence of sin is rejecting the will of God for our lives, then beneath that and driving that is the desire to assert our own will for our lives, to take back control, to, to exercise authority and power ourselves, to insist that what happens around us must happen the way we want it to. And I, I repeat, it's astonishing how much of that lives on in each one of us, even after many years as a disciple of Christ. 
This morning, as we look at this very familiar passage from Matthew's Gospel, I'm hoping you'll be challenged, as I have been as I've prepared this sermon, at how much of that lives on in you, how much of that lives on in me. How easy it is to let the contrary message of the gospel simply wash over us and leave the basic structure of how we think, how we make decisions, how we relate to those around us untouched. We can be walking closely with Jesus, be amongst his closest companions, day and night with him for three years and still think like the world. You can be sitting in Bible studies and church services attend conferences, listen to podcasts, even lead Bible studies and preach sermons, attend more college and still fundamentally think like the world. A friend of mine wrote to me this week to express her concerns about the high rate of domestic violence in our churches and even in the marriages and families of people in Christian ministry. In her view, it could all be sourced back to something like this. For all the things might look like on the surface and for all the promises made, books read, sermons preached, too often we still think of relationships in terms of power and control. Men wanting to control their wives, women wanting to control their husbands. And while the means used might be different in each case, the underlying dynamic is the same the demand that my will must prevail, a position of power that allows me to determine how other people must act and even think. And it seems the mad German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche was not all wrong. We crave power and control. And that craving is very deep. You might say it's primal. And too often that's just as true of Christians as of anyone else. It's all about power. It's all about control and the ability to bend others to your will. There are plenty of opportunities to act like that in the home. And there are plenty of opportunities to act like that in Christian ministry. And the really scary thing is that it happens. It is secretly guarded, refined and protected within us at the very same time that we hear of Jesus doing exactly the opposite. In Matthew's Gospel and in Mark's, the request of the Zebedee family, mother and sons, occurs immediately after the third of Jesus' predictions of his coming suffering, death and resurrection. Three times now, Jesus has told the disciples of what is to come. He did that to prepare them as they continued on this journey to Jerusalem. He did not want it to catch them by surprise, to demoralize them or to make them give up. But he did it too to help them see things differently, to look at things differently. And what is really scary is that they heard this not once, not twice, but three times and not from some poor communicator who fumbled the words and muffled the message, but from Jesus himself and still they were not prepared, and still they did not see things differently. They were shocked and demoralized when it happened, just as he said, and they continued to think and behave and plan just like the world. 
Well, take a look with me for a minute at those words of Jesus, his prediction of what lies before him in Jerusalem. They were heading up the hill, that steep, dusty road to the top of the hill on which was perched the city. And Jesus separated out the 12 from the rest of the group that was following him. He spoke to them privately. Seems he had something important to say to them that was, for the moment anyway, just for them. Each time Jesus predicted his death on their journey to Jerusalem, he added a little more detail. This time it's the step-by-step -step progress of his being handed over. First to the chief priests and scribes, that will end in their condemnation of him as worthy of death. Then to the Gentiles, who in their characteristic way would mock him and beat him and then crucify him. The Jews and Gentiles will both play a part in this. It will be the whole world in league against him. You know, one of the great tragedies of history is that time and again, Gentile Christians have accused the Jews of being Christ killers. They were the ones that did this, his own people, the Jews. It has fueled horrific programs of anti-Semitism over the centuries. But Jesus made clear in this prediction, it would be the whole world drawn together by a scandalous hatred of God's rule who would be complicit in his death. The disciples uh, didn't get it yet, not yet, which means they didn't get the note of hope at the end either. The prediction itself was a sign of hope, of course. Jesus knows what lies ahead of him, not going to be taken by surprise. He is heading to Jerusalem with his eyes wide open and his resolve entirely undiminished. But the note of hope at the end goes further. On the third day, on the great day of deliverance, he will be raised. Not simply he will rise, but he will be raised. The chief priests, the scribes and the Gentiles all pushing in one direction. But there is someone who will turn all their efforts upside down. The handing over is not the final word. The raising up is. Now remember for a moment who it is who says these words. The one who went to Jerusalem, even though he knew it would mean being handed over to the chief priests and scribes and then to the Gentiles and finally to the cross, is the same one whose glory had just been glimpsed on the Mount of Transfiguration. That one honoured by both Moses and Elijah. The one over whom the words were pronounced, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That one was determined to go to Jerusalem and be humiliated. His greatness would show itself in this being brought low, stripped and beaten, mocked and cursed, nailed to a cross and left to die all the time trusting in the promise of the resurrection. Handed over and condemned to death. Handed over and abused in the most horrible way by those who came to save. Well, they're still on that road, still heading up that hill when the mother of James and John comes up to Jesus, falls at his feet, expresses humility and devotion and presents him with her request. There had been many who'd come up to Jesus on that journey. 
the Pharisees to challenge him, the sick to plead with him. But this woman comes and humbles herself before him. Her recognition of him and devotion to him must have seemed like a breath of fresh air. But the air is sucked out of the scene by the request that she brings. Let my boys have the places of supreme honour beside you when you sit in your glory. I mean, hadn't she listened? Hadn't they told her? Hadn't any of them understood? Could they really be that tone deaf? He had just told them all that he was going to die and he was deliberately and determinedly walking right up into death. He was going to let himself be handed over, let himself be condemned, let himself be spat on and laughed at, beaten and ridiculed and then nailed to a cross. And she, but not just her, both her sons as well, it seems, are thinking about honour and glory and status and power. They were thinking just like the world. Sitting at the right hand of the king on his throne gives you a particular status, and so does sitting on his left. It tells everyone you are important. They'd better do what you tell them to. After all, you have the ear of the king. But how could you possibly be thinking like that when you've just heard, handed over to condemnation, handed over to be crucified? And don't think for a moment it was just these two and their mother. The rest of the disciples were furious when they found out because they'd been beaten to the punch. Seems the others saw their own lost opportunity in this mother's question. They wanted the status themselves. They wanted the recognition and the honour and the power. They wanted an opportunity to exercise control over the lives of others. And do you think you'd be any different? Really? Did you notice how quickly, how blindly the two brothers announced they were up for it? They didn't seem to think about what Jesus was saying. They didn't think for a moment this might be the cup of God's wrath that Isaiah had been talking about in Isaiah 51. Perhaps they were simply thinking it was some cup of feasting shared by the king only with those closest to him. Another sign of how they would be set apart as special. They were still thinking like the world. After all they'd seen and all they'd heard, disciples of Jesus who still pursued importance and status, power and authority. But Jesus was not going to Jerusalem to dish out honours, but to die. And more than that, this is not how the kingdom, his kingdom works. His is a kingdom of reversal, where greatness is seen in service, even the most menial service, where nothing is beneath me because nothing was beneath him. And Jesus spoke it plainly and clearly. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles dominate them and their great ones force their authority upon them. It will not be so among you. But whoever wants to be great among you will become your servant. And whoever wants to be first will be your slave. I too often think and behave like the rulers of the Gentiles rather than like a servant. Too often the choices I make are to secure my own control and authority and power. 
and it can bubble out even in my closest relationships, dominating those around me, forcing my authority upon them. And every time I do that or think like that, just as every time you do that or think like that, we are thinking and acting like the world and not like the Saviour. We speak a lot about ministry and here we train for ministry. The word just means service. Service with a particular focus to be sure, but service nonetheless. You may be part of a ministry team now or before too long. How do you act among them? How could bullying or coercive and controlling behaviour ever be something we would engage in or improve, endorse? Some of God's people may now or before too long be entrusted into your care. You'll be expected to exercise a ministry to them, to, to serve them. How do you act towards them? Is your ministry an opportunity for control? the exercise of power, the reinforcement of status. And many of you now or before too long will be married and part of a family. How could bullying or manipulation or coercion or control or power ever be justified in the home? Leadership in any one of those contexts is not about power. It's about service, self-sacrificial, Generous, gracious service. So is there an answer? What is the antidote to our craving for power and control? Well, it's actually here in this same passage. In the truth that brackets the astonishing and scary incident of the Zebedee family. On one side, Jesus' prediction of his death. We are going up to Jerusalem and it will mean this and it will happen like this. On the other side, one of the most magnificent statements in the whole of the Bible. Why abandon the pursuit of power and control or the quiet and manipulative choices which serve the interests of power and control? Because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you want to know what greatness looks like in God's kingdom? Look at Jesus. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you want to know what headship looks like in God's kingdom? Look at Jesus. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you want to know what leadership looks like in God's kingdom? Look at Jesus. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The son of man, the glorious figure of Daniel 7, into whose hand all authority was given. Exercise that authority in this way. And if we really face that, really understand the extraordinary depth and richness of that. Then we will want to abandon our visible and even invisible ways of thinking like the world. We'll want to repent. We'll want to seek forgiveness. We'll want to embrace Jesus' view of greatness and headship and leadership. And at this point, these words of Jesus minister to us in another way. 
he came to die as a ransom for me. Compromised and confused as I am to be my ransom. The price for sin has been paid, all my sin. My failures in relationship and even my sins of leadership too. So I do not need to be afraid, but rather cast myself on him. I don't need to remain astonished or appalled or even scared by the extent to which the world's way of thinking still bubbles up and influences my behaviour. I don't need to crumple in a heap and remain there because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, and I am one of that many. Friends, that's a verse to come back to again and again when making decisions about how to respond to those around you and especially those under your care. Make it a touchstone by which you regularly test the leadership you may be called to exercise. And take comfort from it as you remember that you are one of those he came to serve and to ransom for his kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, we confess to you that each one of us fails at this so very often. We are not the servants we ought to be. Our service is not patterned perfectly on that of the Lord Jesus. And we ask your forgiveness for that. And we rejoice that his service is what gains us that forgiveness, cleanses us from that sin and promises us a future. So Father, as we receive the challenge this morning, we take comfort in this too, that he came not to be served, but to serve, and he gave his life as a ransom for us. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.